Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, Lord willing, we will finish this chapter this morning. Acts 4, and we'll begin with, well, we'll begin with verse 29 to finish the prayer of the apostles. Acts 4.29, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need." And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to focus on your word this morning. We pray that we would do the things that the early church did in terms of prayer and speaking your word, and being filled with your spirit, and that the overflow of that, the byproducts of that, would be the unity, and the generosity, and the apostolicity that marked this congregation. Mark us in the same way, we ask. Help me to speak boldly and accurately concerning what your word has to say to us. Help us all to listen, to mark what we hear, to talk about it, to think about it, and to bring forth the fruit of it in our lives, and especially in the life of our church body. We pray these things, Lord, in the name of your Son, whose church it is. Amen. Well, Luke loves to summarize, and we're very grateful for that, because a history of the church that's, well, on this Sunday the so-and-sos were here, and on that Sunday the so-and-sos weren't here, and there was that one summer when the air conditioner didn't work. And things of that nature get very tedious very quickly. Luke doesn't describe for us. And on the next Sunday, Peter preached to them from this text, and then they all went and had a potluck. No, he gives us the baseline practices, the things that they continued to do week after week, day after day, and eventually year after year. Our text this morning, of course, is no different. This is another one of his summaries. But unlike the summary in chapter 2 that focused on preaching the word, the sacraments, and church membership, kind of Luke's three biggies, this one focuses instead on prayer and being filled with the Spirit, speaking God's word boldly, or really those are the precursors. That's in verse 31. The summary proper then begins... In verse 32, and in this summary, Luke highlights not speaking the word and the sacraments and church membership. He highlights much more 
unity, generosity, and apostolicity. So, unity, generosity, and the leadership of the apostles. And what tends to jump out at us the most, of course, is the generosity, because this is frankly very rare. People give to charity, absolutely. But I dare say none of you have ever seen someone liquidate a piece of real estate and donate all of it to charity. I certainly haven't. And yet, that's what's happening in this summary. How did they get there? Well, the answer is they didn't start there. That was a byproduct. That was a result. That was an outcome of what's described earlier in chapter 4, which, of course, is persecution. Persecution led to corporate prayer, which led to unity, which led to generosity. All of this took place under the leadership of the apostles. Remember, Luke is showing us that Jesus really reigns. That's the goal of his his book, to show us that the kingdom is actually happening, that Jesus is really sovereign. So as Christ rules in his church, he sends persecution, which produces corporate prayer, which produces unity, which produces generosity. The basics, verse 31, prayer, right? They were persecuted, they pray. When they had prayed, not before they prayed, not there was radical generosity and that led them to start praying. No, they prayed because of persecution and then from prayer flow the other things that are mentioned through the rest of the chapter. The apostles, the church, got together and prayed. When our church gets used to going into God's presence in corporate prayer is when we will see the transformational effects of the reign of Christ in our church and in our city. A prayerless church is a powerless church because it is out of touch with the one to whom belongs all power in heaven and on earth. A prayerless church is a powerless church because it's out of touch with the one who holds all power. Our pastor in Greenville used to say all the time, uh, no prayer, no power, little prayer, little power, much prayer, much power. And certainly that is what Luke is showing us in this text. When they had prayed, what happened? The place was shaken. Is that a mark of the church? Your building shakes. No, that was a sign. And what did it signify? The thing signified is what's important. The thing signified is the presence of the Spirit in answer to their prayer. The Spirit came and His coming shook the building. So being Spirit-filled means having the Holy Spirit present in your life such that He guides and controls your decisions, your actions, your thought processes, your heart's desires. That was the outcome of their prayer, that the Spirit came and filled them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We know we're filled with the Spirit when we show the fruits of the Spirit, when our church is marked by love, joy, and peace, plus the other fruits of the Spirit. 
Or a church that's not full of love, not full of joy, not full of peace, is a church where the Spirit is absent. Their building might shake, but they don't have the thing signified. The presence and power of the Spirit. When the Spirit is there, when they prayed, when the Spirit comes, then they speak the Word of God with boldness. So that was last week's sermon. You want power to evangelize? Don't start with evangelism. Evangelism is a fruit that grows on the tree of prayer and fullness with the Spirit. You won't speak the Word of God boldly until you've been in the presence of God. Uh, quote day, Sinclair Ferguson, this I actually read, not in one of Sinclair Ferguson's books, but in the Wall Street Journal, had something about, we often make the mistake of trying to talk to unbelievers about God before we've talked to God about those unbelievers. That's not a mistake that Peter, John, and the rest of the apostles wanted to make. And so they prayed Then they were filled with the Spirit. And then as a result of that, they spoke the Word of God boldly. Now clearly, speaking the Word of God is one of the most important aspects of the church. And that's what comes first in Luke's major summary in chapter 2. They continued in the apostles' teaching. Speaking the Word of God is far from the only thing we do. A church where you can only hear the Word of God and don't see... The other things here, unity, generosity, apostolic leadership, is a church where you say, well, they may say the word of God, but clearly they don't believe it or act on it or really pay attention to what it says. Right? It's a question. Is the word of God actually there when there are people who can speak it, but don't do any more with it? I knew a man one time who said, I have a problem with anger. I yell at my children too much. Therefore, I'm going to start a Bible memory program. And I'm going to memorize 50 verses on anger this year. And his kids thought it made him worse than ever. Speaking the Word of God is good. We need to do it. But a fruitful speaking of the Word of God will issue in the kinds of things that are described in verses 32 to 37. The byproducts of persecution which produces corporate prayer, which produces the fullness of the Spirit, which produces the speaking of the Word. What happens next? Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. What comes next is unity. There's a Greek saying, two friends, one soul. And some commentators speculate that Luke actually added the word one heart to that saying in order to make it sound more biblical. Two friends, or the multitude, one heart, one soul. This church was, right, if you went around and asked ten different members of First Church Jerusalem what they thought, about some aspect of church life, you would get the same answer from all ten of them. They were of one heart and one soul. That's a pretty amazing claim. How did that come about? That came through being persecuted together. It came through praying together 
and then being filled with the Spirit together and speaking the Word of God together. The upshot of that was that they agreed with each other and they desired the same things. Other, elsewhere in the New Testament, this is described not as unity, but as peace. Right? This is the fruit of the Spirit that Paul calls peace. Peace is the union of the appetites inclinations with themselves and with the inclinations of the people around you. That's the definition of peace. And that's where the Jerusalem church was. The fruit of the Spirit that came to the fore immediately was this fruit we call peace. I want what he wants. He wants what I want. And I want the same thing that I want, right? Peace starts in the heart. People who, a person whose heart is divided, who wants mutually exclusive things, can't have peace. Hence the foolishness, I might add. It's kind of silly to take a swipe, side swipe at a, pers- at, a, at a politician. But the foolishness of calling for unity to people whose hearts are given over to sin and divided. Those people can't have unity because they can't have peace. They want mutually exclusive things. The church in Jerusalem had the fruit of the Spirit called peace and therefore they wanted, each individual had a united heart. He wanted to glorify Christ and the whole church together wanted to glorify Christ. And then the outcome of that unity is this radical voluntary sharing that Luke highlights. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. They shared property because of unity. Allow me to just say it doesn't work the other way. You cannot generate unity by sharing first. Rather, it's empirically true, the sociologists have discovered this, as of course they could have seen it here, if you are united, then you will share. And if you're not united, sharing will only drive you further apart. What do I mean? Well, by definition, I'm more willing to share with somebody like me, because that means that his goals, his plans, his desires are more in line with mine. If I give money to somebody who's nothing like me, whose plans, goals, and values are by definition radically different from mine, then he's going to use the money to do things that I disapprove of. All of us have certain organizations that we would never dream of donating money to. NARAL Pro-Choice America comes to mind. Their plans, their goals, their values are so radically opposed to my own that I would never give them a dime. And they know it, they don't send me fundraising appeals. What is Luke saying? When you're unified, when you're at peace with one another, when you want the same things, then you can share. Because the person you're sharing with is likely to pursue the same goals values, and objectives that you would pursue. 
Hence, unity must come first before sharing can follow. Sharing is a byproduct of unity. The Jerusalem church wasn't guilted into sharing. Guilt can make people do a lot of things, but it won't make them liquidate real estate. No, the Jerusalem church was unified into sharing. As I was writing this sermon, an ad from Costco came in for an $800 golf club carrier. You have your bag of clubs, and you can get this little cart, set your golf clubs on it, and then you just push a little button, and it drives itself around electrically. 800 bucks. Now, obviously, that's not something that anyone in this room would consider purchasing. But, radical voluntary sharing, let's say you make the median income for Gillette, which is $81,000 a year. Median household income in our city. What if there's a family in this church that makes half that? Now, lifestyle differences might not be apparent at that point. They drive a little older car than you do. But let's say that there's a family that makes a quarter of that. And you say, wow, this family wants to serve God, but they're prevented from doing so by their lack of funds. What happened in Jerusalem? Those who had more saw those who had less and said, I want to give because those who have less are trying to do the same thing that I'm trying to do. And I want to share with them to help that happen. The reason they shared was not because it's fun to share, nor even that it's rewarding to give. It is rewarding to give. But the reason that they shared was because they were united around their shared love of Jesus and His Spirit. And they had affirmed and nurtured that unity by praying together a lot. They spent time with each other in the presence of God. And that's what gave them the confidence to say, any investment I can make into the kingdom and the persons of my brothers and sisters is worth it. This family needs a car. I'm getting rid of a car. I will give them my car. Or whatever it might be. If you want generosity, nurture unity. If you want to be someone who's willing to give like this, the first thing you have to seek is peace. Peace in your own heart, and then peace within the larger body. So in addition to the generosity where they no longer said, mine, you can't have it, they gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And the apostles especially did that. They were powerfully witnessing to the resurrection, right? Such that people who heard it could not doubt, but that they were telling the truth. That's what powerful testimony means. We saw him alive. And similarly, in a healthy church, the people in the church are getting more and more and more convinced that Jesus is really alive. That the resurrection really is the centerpiece of history. That death is not the final word. 
And that too feeds back into generosity because if the one who dies with the most toys wins, I need to hang on to my toys. But if there's a life beyond this one, if death is not the final end, if I actually can give away all my food and die, there's something better after that. Obviously, they didn't give away all their food and starve themselves to death. That's not what the text is saying. But because they believed in the resurrection, they were able to sell real estate and share with each other. Abundant grace was upon them all. Verse 33b. The late Dallas Willard used to say all the time, every Christian wants to go to Grace Church, nobody wants to go to law church. The grace of God was so abundant here. How does that manifest itself in a church? Well, at law church, they're obsessed with, well, keeping the law. If you ask somebody at law church, have you been wronged? Is there anyone in this congregation who's hurt you? There's someone here who said something mean, did something mean, hurt you in a business deal. At Law Church, they'll have it all ready to go. Yep, time, date, people who were there, all the ways that the offense has been compounded over the last 15 years, it will be right at their fingertips. It'll come spilling out instantly because the law never forgives. Law Church is full of grudges. Law Church is full of beefs and bitterness and everyone there has a chip on each shoulder. They're all mad at each other. That's not the Jerusalem church. Grace Church is where there are no grudges. If you go up to a member of Grace Church and say, has anyone in this congregation wronged you? They'll think and say, not that I can remember. I have been treated better here than anywhere else in my entire life. Because that's what great grace being upon them all means. They had God's favor and therefore they were able to forgive each other and extend grace to one another. They had grace for everything, of course. Not just for forgiving each other, but also for walking with God, obeying Him, keeping His commandments, being at peace with one another. But how do you become Grace Church? Where you don't hold grudges, where you don't remember how the congregation has sinned against you. Well, you do it by being persecuted together, by praying together, by being filled with the Spirit together, by speaking the Word of God together. The things that this church did flowed out into them having great grace upon them all that they shared with one another. Yes, we value the law of God. Yes, we try to keep the law of God. You'll never see a church named Mount Sinai Presbyterian Church. We're not law church. There's also powerful apostolic leadership. You'll see three times in a row. Verse 35. Laid them at the apostles' feet. Verse 37. Laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5, verse 2. Laid it at the apostles' feet. Three times in a row. We have money being laid at the apostles' feet. What does that tell us? The apostles run the show. They make the financial decisions 
for the congregation. There was strong apostolic leadership in this church. The heirs of the apostles in the local church are the elders. Weak elders force the congregation to make all the financial decisions or let the pastor make all the financial decisions. Both models are equally erroneous. The entire church here did not make the financial decisions, nor did one solo pastor, say Peter, make the financial decisions. The apostles together made those calls. And so it is with a healthy church today. The elders take over this function and rightly control the purse strings. A church with good, solid financial leadership is a much more comfortable church to go to than all the stories my father tells about his days in the fundamental Baptist world. Lock the doors and just keep passing the plate until we reach the target. Or love offerings every two weeks, or this or that or the other. Congregation nickel and dimed. Uh, You can even pull out from the chair in front of you if you want the Adventist giving guide and they have it all broken down in there how you should be giving 20% of your income, 10% to the local church, 5% to the regional church, 5% to missions, something like that. Frankly, there's nothing wrong with giving 20%. But the apostles were the ones in the early church who made the decisions about where the money needed to go. And the congregation recognized that by giving the money to them. And that's a model that Luke presents that we need to imitate today. And when that happened, when there was this strong apostolic financial leadership combined with powerful peace and unity, what happened? Well, we had the elimination of poverty. Verse 34, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. There's no one there who through poverty was prevented from serving God. No one had something where they said, well, I would serve Jesus, but I can't. Because why? Well, all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to, to each as anyone had need. The early church had a powerful benevolence ministry, led not by the congregation. It's easy to see that foundering. Okay, everybody, let's all get together. Now here's so-and-so. So-and-so, come up. Tell us about your need. All right, congregation, how much do you want to give this fellow? Not how it was done. No. The apostles made the decisions And the pot they were pulling from was a big one because people liquidated real property and handed that to the church for benevolence. Now, somewhere along the line, what did that turn into? That turned into people giving the real property to the church to be used for institutional maintenance. Right, that happened within about 200 years, right around the time that the church became legal, Suddenly, instead of saying, let's liquidate property and use it for benevolence, it became, let's take this property 
and use it to keep our institution in good shape. The church will own vast tracts of land. Right? What's the largest private landowner in the world? The Roman Catholic Church. And surely the Mormon Church is not too far behind them. Luke shows us this radical generosity where those who had real property didn't say, well, let's give it to the church for institutional maintenance, but rather let's give it to the poor to free them from financial constraint so that they can serve God. So you combine those two things, right? The radical generosity of the congregation with the solid financial decision-making of the apostles. You need both elements. And when you add those two things together, you get the elimination of poverty. What is Luke saying? That a new community without poverty is possible on this earth. This is within reach for our church and for any church that prays together, that's filled with the Spirit together, and thereby becomes unified in speaking God's Word together. When we have the kind of unity that they had, the kind of peace that they had, then we can also see the kind of poverty elimination they had if our elders make the same wise financial decisions. And that's why Luke presents this, not to say that it's common to liquidate real estate and give it to the poor. It's not common. That's not his point. The point is that it's possible. This is something that can be done. And it was done after the church had been persecuted, driven to corporate prayer, and filled with the Spirit. When you are actually living for God, filled with the Spirit, and speaking the Word in regular corporate prayer, you might sell your property and give the money to the poor. Right? I would dare to say that for none of us in this room is that a live option at this moment. None of us is seriously looking into liquidating our real estate handing it over to the poor. And a big part of that is the whole unity thing. We don't know any poor people. The need is not real to us. Right? There's no one coming into this congregation who says, yeah, I live in a grass hut outside of town. But Luke says, if the conditions are right, when you're living for Jesus, you would actually consider doing this. You could actually do this. To make sure that your brother in Christ can get to work. That your sister can pay her tuition. That your brother can put shoes on his kids. Whatever it might be. That's the message here. This is who we can become when we pursue Jesus together. So again, the point is not to guilt people into selling their property. Nor is the point to say the church ought to have the nicest buildings, the most beautiful monumental architecture in town. Right? We should have a gigantic gold-covered altar up front on a congregation of 300 starving people. 
No, that's not the point. They sold and they gave to the poor. And finally, this church that was unified, generous, and apostolic raised up additional leaders. Barnabas makes his appearance in the narrative here. He's a Levite, grew up on the island of Cyprus. He donated money, and that's how he got his start as the assistant to Paul, who we'll see through the rest of the book, spent a lot of time traveling around with Paul, planning churches. A healthy church is raising up new leaders. The church that has to import all of its pastors, all of its elders, all of its deacons from other churches is a church that's doing something wrong. Now, yes, of course, at the same time we can say, well, Barnabas was obviously, he was a Levite, he had grown up in a faithful Jewish home, he had been discipled for probably decades. It wasn't that he was converted last week and now is selling property and giving the proceeds to the poor. He was an import in a certain sense. He came in as a mature believer. But at the same time, the church should be raising up people like Barnabas. So does this portrayal of the church attract you? This summary of what the church can be and will be when we're persecuted, because that's unfortunately part of the message. They didn't achieve this kind of generosity just through hearing the good news about Jesus. They actually had to realize that something was on the line. Maybe there was something about a night in jail for Peter and John that made them say, you know what? If I'm going to go to jail anyway, I might as well go to jail not owning property as owning property. What's the difference? It was after persecution that they got here. So if this kind of church attracts you, then get ready for persecution. And also recognize that they devoted themselves to the word and prayer. It was through corporate prayer that followed the persecution that they arrived at this state of unity and generosity. Right? We can attest that simply a night in jail doesn't make people more generous. It's a night in jail followed by corporate prayer. And above all, keep trusting the Lord who is gracious and generous and a powerful leader and makes his bride look like himself. Acts is about how he rules the certainty of his kingdom. This passage shows what the citizens' assembly of the kingdom looks like when Jesus is in charge there, when things are done his way. They're unified. They're generous. They're apostolic. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would rule us that you would fill us with your spirit, the fruit of whom is peace, and that in the strength of that spirit-filled peace, we would be unified like this, generous like this, led like this. Lord, help us to live as your people, to know the certainty of your kingdom, because we see it, we see you obeyed, your will being done among us every day. We pray these things 
Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.